0: It's my pleasure to be here. First of all, exquisite recorder playing. Exquisite. Do you know how many hours it takes to become really competent in an area? 10,000 hours. So any of you who want to be really competent in something you love, start working on your 10,000 hours. And anything after that is icing on the cake. It's kind of interesting for me today, a month ago I was speaking in a church near Elmshaven in Northern California, which is where Ellen G. White lived. And here I am now, down under they say, but I don't know what I'm under. (laughs) But I'm down under near Sunnyside, which was Ellen G. White's home here, so that's kind of a fun little connection. So the topic today is unity and diversity. I loved the children's story. Dr. Thompson emailed me a little bit ago and said, we're studying the early church. And this Sabbath is the the Sabbath we need to talk about, Acts 15. Can you work that into your presentation? And I went, what? But every time I take a challenge, it always comes out better. Because I was talking about the Apostle Paul anyway. So I spent some time in Acts 15 and there's some good stuff in there about unity and diversity. So I appreciate the challenge, Dr. Thompson, because now I'll pass that on when I do this someplace else. So are we going to be able to advance this? Good. Good. How delightful. Somebody's working on their 10,000 hours. I'll tell you, you are so at the whim of who's ever up there. They don't like something you're saying, they can just cut you right off. So I always try to be really gracious to those people. All right, so diversity is in and of itself, according to some authors, an excellence And this is a quote from Lovejoy. In all phases of human activity, not only are there diverse excellences, but diversity itself is the essence of excellence. So I learned to play two songs on the recorder when my three sons were in a recorder band. I never got past the squeak. So obviously that is not one of my excellences but I'm grateful that it is for someone. We know from PET scan studies that there are no two brains on this planet identical in structure, function, or perception. That's the research. Unfortunately, we don't believe the research, so we don't honor that and work with that. But we'll talk about some of those aspects this morning, which means that No brain can be good at everything. Period. And sometimes when we're good at something, we get a little irritated with another brain who is not. But they are probably very good at something that we are not good at. And part of diversity is to honor those excellences and use them collectively to benefit everyone. Since I'm near Sunnyside. I thought it would be interesting to show you the first use of the oxymoron unity and diversity that I could find in print. It happened to be in the Spirit of Prophecy, 1899, that was before my time. And she says, there are no two leaves of a tree precisely alike. And we know there's no two drops of water, no two snowflakes, on and on and on. Neither do all minds run in the same direction. So we can say there are no two brains that are alike. But while this is so, there may be unity in diversity, so it is in the design of God. So I thought you might find it kind of interesting this morning to to look at some of the ways in which brain imaging equipment has found diversity among brains. Start with a biblical metaphor, which which I was using already from Paul. And I'm sure you know the metaphor. You know, the body is one unit, but it's made up of lots of different parts. And it would be really ridiculous if the foot started whining because it wasn't like a hand. Or the ear expected the eye to be just like it, and so on. And then Paul goes on to say the body of Christ is to be one unit, made up of many different parts. And instead of now talking about body parts, he talks about Jews and Greeks and slaves and free and male and female, and you could just go down the list. So if we want wholeness, we need to embrace the excellences that are found in diversity. At home, in business, at church, and so on. So here's some examples. This is what I call the Who Am I pyramid. It is the model that I use to help people understand that if you really want to know how your brain works, and if you want to use it by design, then you need to at least know these five things about your brain. And certainly there are ways of figuring it out. So I'm going to quickly go through examples from each one of these layers. And it's complex. That's putting it mildly. It's very complex. So let's begin with what the first layer talks about. It's a continuum. Almost everything we can talk about in terms of brain function is a continuum. So at one end of the continuum is... The systemizing brain, which in pretty much all cultures is equated with the functions that we look for in what we call a male brain. And at the other end is the empathizing brain, which in most cultures are the qualities that we subscribe as being related to a female brain. In the middle, there is a little band of 50-50 brains. You know, nobody is ever one or the other. And when you do large sample studies trying to place people on this continuum, let's say here at the very, very end, an extremely systemizing brain might be a Nine, one, nine systemizing, one empathizing. And when you get at this end, you know, um, a really, really XXX um, empathizing brain, then it might be a 1-9. You know, one systemizing and nine empathizing. When you get to the middle, it's 50-50. They get a score of 5-5. Five five. I think it would be really great to be a 5-5 five five because those people seem to be able to communicate equally well with systemizing brains or empathizing brains. However, there's just a little band. And having said that, there's some brains you can't even plot on this continuum. About 5% do not fit on that continuum. 95% of us do. We're just beginning to learn what that 5% is all about. So avoid running up to me after the service and saying, tell me more about the 5%. I think I've got one of them in my family. Because we really don't know a lot about them yet. We just know they don't fit on there. So that's the basic foundational layer of the who am I pyramid. What kind of brain do you have? Systemizing, empathizing, 50-50, or are you one of those brains of excellence that doesn't even fit on that continuum? And whatever our position is on that continuum, we sometimes get a little squirrely about people who we think their brains aren't at our position. And that's not what diversity is all about. So a couple of examples of male-female differences, the systemizing versus the empathizing brain. First of all, the systemizing brain is much more active. It is typically more active even during gestation. Now, this is bell curve research. So there are some female fetuses that are pretty active and some male fema- fetuses that aren't so active, but in general, the uh, the male retina actually has far more m cells in it m for motion than the female brain and so they need to move more and they do and females are always telling males to quit quit moving around calm down sit still now that's not how their brains were designed to work so that's the reason i usually tell Everybody, every audience, church or not, if you've got a brain that needs to move to learn, especially if you have a male brain, get up any time you want to. And some people actually believe I mean that and do. And if they don't, they tend to fall asleep. Because those kinds of brains need to move to learn. And if they're not allowed to, to move, the brain goes, Well nothing's happening here. I think I'll just take a snooze until something happens where I can move and then I'll have energy. So in classes, students need to tell the teacher, I have the kind of brain that needs to move to learn. I'd like to stand at the back. You know, I'm not going to create havoc in the back of the room, but I need to be able to move to learn. And teachers who understand brain function are only too happy to have that happen. So they're more physically active. The systemizing brain is more goal-oriented. It doesn't mean that the empathizing brain isn't, but the empathizing brain is more concerned about the quality of life on the way to the goal. And boy, this was sure acted out in our family system. When we would travel, my father would plot the number of miles, kilometers we had to go, how much time we had, He'd decide when we had to get up in the morning, how often we could stop, how many miles an hour we should try to drive. And so we'd get up at five o'clock in the morning and pile in the car at five thirty and we are goal oriented. And my little brother, who had a bladder the size of a walnut, <laughs> we wouldn't be very far on the trip and he'd go, Dad, I gotta go to the bathroom. And my father would look at his watch and say, "Uh, it's 20 minutes till the next stop, hold it. Very (laughs) goal-oriented. My mother was not so goal-oriented. She really did not appreciate being expected to make lunch in the back seat and hand it around just so we could stay on schedule. Neither one is good or bad, but out of balance, both are unfortunate. And I kind of think that's one of the reasons that The biblical model is for a male brain and a female brain to work together in general because they've got different characteristics and they can help moderate the extremes in the other one. The systemizing brain wants the bottom line. Do not give me all the details, just the bottom line. The empathizing brain, if it doesn't know this, wants to tell the whole story from A to Z to everyone. And that doesn't work for the male brain. They've tuned out after the second sentence. And she finally gets to the end of the story, the bottom line, and she doesn't think he's listening and says, what did I just say? And he tells her something she said a month ago. Now there's a problem. (laughs) And it's so interesting. You know, my husband answered the phone one day, and this is how his side of the conversation went. Ah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Good. Bye. I said, who was that? He said, it's your favorite aunt. And I said, so what did she say? Everything's fine. (laughs) Okay, that's the bottom line, but I want to know what's fine. So I get on the phone and I go, Aunt Isabel, he says everything is fine. What did you tell him? Well, the dog had pups yesterday, everything's fine. Uh, Your cousin is pregnant, everything's fine. I've decided to take a trip to to Tahiti next month, everything's fine. Okay, there's a difference here. One of the key things is that the systemizing brain finds it easier to work with people it doesn't like. The empathizing brain seems to believe that it needs to like the people it works with in order to do a good job. So get over it. You don't have to like them. You just have to work with them. And that will usually make it a little easier. And sometimes males find that they like the people they work with, but that is not a criteria for them. They want competence. And I I honor that. And as someone with an empathizing brain, I want competence too. Um, I'm learning to work with people whether I like them or not because I really don't have that choice at work. West brain, east brain, I had to add another layer on the pyramid last year because we have a new science, cultural neuroscience, I find it absolutely fascinating. You can go to my website, click on practical applications, then on cultural neuroscience, and you'll get to see some of the early emerging research. For example, we now know that West brains, meaning people who are raised in American European cultures, pretty much, tend to think in a more analytical way. It's not good or bad, it's just different. Whereas people who are raised in Eastern cultures, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, on and on, they tend to think in a more holistic manner. Really quite a different perspective. So if you want a perspective that's going to work for the world, in general, you got to have both of these brains at the table. For example, do you remember in school, usually early primary school, we were sometimes given a piece of paper with lots of pictures on it, and we were told to draw a line between the two that match. Well, it turns out that when you give that kind of assessment to people born and raised in the West, this is what they'll do with these two figures. They will link a monkey with a panda because both of them are mammals. They're, they're organizing them in a categorical style. Eastern brains don't tend to do that they will link a money with a monkey with a banana because monkeys eat bananas and that helps to sustain life they're looking at the relational connection and that's really important to do but you only do that if you know about it this is the extraversion ambiversion introversion continuum and it's fascinating We didn't know until a few years ago that most people are ambiverts. They're not either extroverted or introverted. Those labels most properly apply to the extremes of this continuum, and we know a lot about those from PET scan studies. We don't know as much about ambiverts. We believe that they are a combination of both at a much Less intense level, if you will, much more moderate level. So, an extrovert over here, 15% of the population, tends to do well at high stimulation, high excitement tasks. They're gifted for that. And during the music last night, I had my earplugs in. Nothing wrong with the music. But with extroverts, Everything they take in gets miniaturized. It's like they're playing with a little tabletop exercise of little miniature things. So they need lots of stimulation and they like it loud so they can hear it. Well, introverts are absolutely opposite. Everything they take in gets magnified like Jack and the Beanstalk. So a sound is much louder for an introvert than it is for an extrovert. There's not a lot of difference. That doesn't happen with introvert, with ambiverts. Pretty much what they take in is how it is. My brain position is right here, smack up against the introversion line. So some things are too loud for me. So I carry my earplugs, pop in my earplugs, I hear just fine. In, an, in a group like this, we've got people all along that continuum. So if you're introverted, bring your earplugs. And if you're extroverted, realize that sometimes, like they did this morning beautifully, it's really great for some of the ambiverts and introverts to just dampen down the sound a bit. We need to try to recognize the diversity of excellence by moderating our presentation so something will work for everybody in a service. So the introverts do better at low stimulation but high attention tasks. This means when I fly back to America tomorrow, the person at the airport that's in the tower, I want to be an introvert. I want them to have high attention skills watching that screen. That is not a good place for an extrovert. An extrovert watches the screen for a while. This plane's flying around. Well, what else? Whoops! So you want people to be in the right job based on their extroversion, ambiversion, introversion. And so ambiverts tend to do best with moderate amounts of stimulation and attention. Oh, here's a couple of examples. The energy is absolutely drained from an extroverted brain if they're in a non-stimulating environment. And although boredom is a choice... If there's not enough stimulation, they're going to be in trouble. They're going to get more restless than usual. They'll maybe fall asleep. They often get in trouble. They don't mean to get in trouble. They're just looking for something to stimulate their brain. They need frequent breaks when trying to focus. And that's one of the reasons I tell extroverts, get up, move. Just moving is a break for the brain. The introverts are exactly opposite. They get drained by overstimulating environments. If I hadn't had my earplugs in, I would actually be tired after listening to two or three really loud, intense, stimulating songs. With my earplugs in, I love it. If introverts get overstimulated, they get very tired, often depressed, and frequently sick. But they are the kind of people that can focus for a long time on something. You know we have no libraries that I know of in the world for extroverts and that's too bad. Uh, the good news is that we can do a lot of research on the internet so now they don't even have to go to the library. But libraries are usually run by introverts. You know they can focus on things for a long amount of time. So let's say an extrovert and an introvert go to the library at 10 o'clock in the morning They're both equally interested in the topic. The introvert sits down at the desk, gets the stuff out at 5 o'clock. They're still there studying. They've got lots of acetylcholine in their brain. They can focus for hours and hours and hours. Uh, The extrovert did a pretty good job for about 10 minutes. And then there wasn't enough going on to keep them awake. So the brain pushes them to do things. You know, they start tapping. Oops, didn't mean to change that. (laughs) They start tapping. (laughs) See what I mean? Just anything to keep them awake. They drop their book off the desk. Didn't mean to. Just makes a sound and kind of wakes them up for a few minutes. And the introverted librarian will come over and ask them to leave. (laughs) Unfortunate. All right, so you can ask nurses. I had fun with all the nurses last night. I started my career in nursing. Great field to jump off from. You know, there's so many things you can do once you got that basis. You ask nurses who work in the nursery. You know, the babies are in there sometimes only for six hours, maybe for a couple of days. You ask them, can you tell... Which babies are extroverted, ambiverted, or introverted? And they'll usually say, is the Pope Catholic? (laughs) You know, the little extroverted babies are the ones that are don't need as much sleep. They're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Do not put them over in a corner and cover them up. They will howl. The introverted babies, they want you to put them over in the corner and cover them up. And don't talk to me unless I'm wet or hungry and if the baby is not extroverted or introverted, then it's likely to be ambiverted because that's the label of exclusion, and they know, they can tell. Problem comes when a couple of introverted parents have a very extroverted child, and they don't know what happened. <laughs> and they take them to the doctor, the teacher tells them to take him to the doctor, teacher who's ambiverted, and the doctor puts them on medication. Must be something wrong with them, they're not like their parents. No. And I sometimes think God lets that happen so we can learn to deal with brains that are different from ours. But we usually try to make them out to function like we do. Or extroverted parents have an introverted child. And they take him to the psychologist because something's wrong with them. They want to just be in their room reading. No, nothing wrong with them. I find the teamwork continuum fascinating. Because who knew that whether or not you like teamwork has everything to do with your extroversion, ambiversion, introversion. There's only one position on that continuum that really likes to be on a team. And that's right here in the middle of ambiversion. Extroverts don't wanna be on a team. Give me a break. They know how to do it, let's just get it done. I don't wanna sit around and listen to these people hash out everything hour after hour introverts don't want to be on a team they'll do the research and they'll send it to you to present they don't want to be on a team the ambiverts you can sort of divide into three areas the middle one loves to be on a team loves teamwork the ones sort of leaning toward extroversion they'll be on a team but pretty much only if you let them be in charge because that's going to be a little more stimulation for them And this is my position and I'm basically a resource specialist in brain function for Adventist health. I don't want to be on a team. I like to do the research. I'm willing to go present it, but then let me leave. So there's whole different ways of of approaching teamwork. And they're all valid based on brain function. They're all different. Sensory preference. That's the one, two, three, fourth layer on the pyramid. This is how we communicate with others, through the senses. And I don't know of any other way we communicate. So when you look at the cerebrum, you know, my face is a clock metaphor, 12, 6, 9, 3, two lines, four chunks of tissue, that's the cerebrum. You can break that down into three functional layers, And here is how I draw it out. There's a fissure in the middle, fissure in each hemisphere, there's your four chunks. The sensory data we take in through the brain stem is pretty much decoded in these two basal, foundational chunks behind your facial cheeks. With one exception. Odors are decoded here in this middle layer. So if you have an emotional memory that's tied to an odor and you smell that, you will be instantly back at that experience because the transfer of information from short to long-term memory and the processing of odors happens in this subconscious part of the brain, which is the reason that when I make presentations to the nursing students, we talk about odors. Because when you become ill, the first sense to go is your sense of smell. And you know, this sweet young thing who wants to smell really good on duty but doesn't understand this comes in drenched in Chanel number 5. And she goes in to see Joe Blow, who's just had a heart attack and feeling really, really sick. He gets one whiff of that and he throws up. So the nurse is trained to call the doctor when new symptoms develop, so she calls the doctor and says, you know, I'm in here taking care of Joe Blow and he just threw up so we need medication for nausea and vomiting. So the doctor orders something, he uh, he or she has no idea that the only reason he's throwing up is because his nurse is reeking of Chanel number 5 and it smells really awful to him. So now we give him medication that affects every cell in his body that he doesn't need. So I try to teach these nurses, be really clean, but avoid wearing any scent to work. Because in a hospital, that can negatively impact people who are sick. So here's the population estimates. Just like we've got more ambiverts, 60% of the population have a visual sensory preference, meaning when they're exposed to all three types of sensory data, what they take in through their eyes registers most quickly. And now that I know that, I never do a presentation unless I'm out in a creek bed in China without PowerPoints. Because 60% of you need something to look at. And when you cut that by gender, far more males are visual than females. 20% are auditory. That means sound registers in their brain most quickly and intensely. So not only am I on the continuum toward the introverted level, but I also have an auditory sensory preference. So I'm much more sensitive to sound than a lot of people. And when you cut this by gender, far more females are auditory than males. And the remaining 20% are kinesthetic. They're really sensitive to odors and temperature and whether the pews are padded and, you know, so on and so forth. And they can be impacted by sound, not because they're auditory, but because sound waves beat against their skin. And the skin is our largest body organ. And so sometimes they like or dislike certain types of sounds because it's, beating against their skin like, like mallets on a drum. We tend to relate to others in our sensory preference unless we learn about them all and pay attention. Because if I'm trying to communicate with someone who's visual in an auditory style, I mean, we could spend a whole session on this, and I'm saying, do you hear what I mean? and their brains are trying to see what I'm saying, the brain literally does a disconnect. It's not about hearing, it's about seeing. So the first thing I think of if I'm trying to communicate with somebody and believe me, the light's on, but nobody appears to be home. The first thing I think about is, oh, I wonder if they have a different sensory preference from me. So if I say, do you hear what I'm saying? And they go, no, it's not clear to me at all. Clear is a visual word. And I go, oh, I bet they're, I bet they're visual. All right, I got to change the words I use so their brains will be comfortable and they'll start perceiving. So instead of asking them if they hear what I mean, I'll say, let me rephrase that and see if I can put it in visual language so you can see what I mean. And the brain goes, oh, that person talks my language. Okay, let's relax. We'll get it. When a parent comes to me and says, my child is not learning with this new teacher, the first thing I want to know is the child's sensory preference and the teacher's sensory preference. Because the teacher may be teaching in a way that that child cannot learn. Because learning has everything to do with our sensory preference. We tend to gravitate toward environments that reward our sensory preference, meaning it's honored, it's okay. And sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, my kids don't seem to want to come home. They, they really don't want to spend any time at home. And I'll think, hmm, think the pyramid. Are there innate giftednesses being honored and rewarded in that environment? Or are the parents visual and they're auditory or kinesthetic and the parents don't get it? So we really need to pay attention to that. If you will go to the four Gospels and read any parable, any miracle, you pretty much will find all the sensory systems represented. There's something there for everybody, regardless of their preference. So, when I travel around the world, I sometimes ask people what, what sensory preference was emphasized in your home growing up? Which one is emphasized in your home right now? In my family, my dad was kinesthetic, my brother was kinesthetic, my mother was visual, and I'm auditory. I'll tell you, I never met her expectations because I, I don't take in information visually. And I have a frontal right brain lead where there's no language anyway. It's the big picture. It's not about all the little details. She was an artist, and she would sometimes say something like this to me. Arlene, I need some more red pastels. Will you go out to the garage, and over in the corner, third shelf or so, you should find the boxes of pastels. Bring me some red pastels okay, I go out to the garage, I go over to the corner, I count the third shelf, and I start looking for red pastels. I don't see red pastels. You know, three days later, she comes out and goes, what are you doing out here? Where are my pastels? And I go, I don't see them. She goes, they're right there. What's the problem? But we didn't take information in the same. So I grew up feeling pretty stupid. And when she told me I wasn't smart enough to take medicine, that reinforced that. Because our brains were very different, and she thought, since mine wasn't like hers, I must be really dumb. And we do that to each other all the time, and we don't mean to. Or maybe we do. So when you go to Europe, uh, no padded pews in any of the cathedrals I've been in. So that's a little dicey for a kinesthetic. And no heating, no air conditioning either. But I'll tell you, it's filled with the most gorgeous, carved statuary for a visual that I've ever seen. And a church like Notre Dame, oh my goodness, what a sound treat for an auditory. And so then we come over to the States, and many of our churches are just flaming plain. There is nothing for a visual. And I think, my goodness, when you look at the biblical model, you know, we have, we need stuff in churches for visuals, as well as kinesthetics. And so far, the crew at the back is doing a stellar job with the sound. That's really important to me, and I haven't squeaked yet. That's wonderful. All right, top of the pyramid we call it your brain lead meaning where in those four chunks do you have your energy advantage and we know from pet scan studies especially by dr richard hayer in southern california that you know we don't like to say always and never with brains because there's always an outlier But we believe that most brains, and you can measure this on PET scan studies, are born with an energy advantage in one of these chunks over the other. Three. And that's where I believe the spiritual gifts come in. You will achieve excellence in your spiritual gift if it is aligned with where your energy advantage is. But we so often try to make people do things that don't work for their brain. There's plenty of us on this planet. We don't all need to do the same thing, and we will not be good at everything. So this is what Dr. Hayer says. The brain uses less oxygen, glucose, and micronutrition and needs a shorter recovery time when performing tasks that draw heavily on its area of energy advantage, or brain lead. And it's a huge energy advantage. Those of you who want the physiology, there is a reduced resistance to the transmission of information across the synapse in one of those chunks in your brain. It will cost you on the average of a dollar per second when you are using that part of your brain. Anywhere else in the brain, figure $100 per second. Doesn't seem to be anything in between. So part of living successfully is figuring out where did the Lord put your energy advantage? How can I align at least 51% of what I do with that and become excellent in competence? The lock and key metaphor will get you this fastest, in my brain's opinion. So the metaphor says that the locks represent all the activities that are possible in life, and the keys represent your brain's energy advantage. When you come out the chute, you have 25 keys because there are 100 locks on the planet. That's all you're ever gonna get. Never gonna get any more keys. And when you are aligning that activity with a lock for which you have a key piece of cake, easy for you to do. Any place else in the brain that you are functioning, and we do have to use the whole brain. I mean, I got here on time this morning, you know, and that's the farthest away from my innate energy advantage, but I've learned to use other parts of my brain, takes more energy. I've got my clock here so that, you know, I quit before you start getting really antsy <laughs> because I could talk about this for a week straight if I didn't have to eat and sleep. I love this stuff. I'm sure you can't tell. So any place else in the brain, figure that you're picking a lock and you have varying risks of even being able to pick it And it's going to take you time and energy, even if you succeed. So this is a huge piece of brain function work. When you are trying to pick too many locks, meaning the research is that you want 51% of your life's activities aligned with your brain lead to be really healthy, successful, live a long time, If you are trying to pick too many locks, you are at high risk for developing a syndrome called PASS, Prolonged Adaption Stress Syndrome. We've been doing this research for about 10 years, and it is just amazingly aligned with whether someone knows who they are innately, how they were created, and whether that's aligned with their activities. Otherwise, you've got some pretty serious potential problems so here's the breakdown of the four this frontal left is all about setting and achieving goals making decisions and telling everybody what to do and some of that is needed this basal left part is all about running routines and habits and providing services dependably you know, the, the PA people are providing a service dependably. So I, if they do it well, I know they've got some basal left function. The basal right is all about spirituality and connection and trusting your higher power and so on and so forth. And the frontal right is all about innovation, anticipating and making changes. Um, home of humor, the ability to meditate, the ability to make internal mental pictures. So each one of you will do one of these types of activities with a whole lot less energy. And once you figure that out, life just gets better and better. I really think that's all about the parable of the talents. The one who buried his talents didn't have a clue about who he was. Some of the others did. The behaviors that a person exhibits may not be aligned with their brain lead. Ideally it is. You know who you are, you hone your skills, you live it. But that's all about nature. Genes and chromosomes and all of the pieces on the Who Am I pyramid. But nurture is the expectations in the environment that act upon who we are innately. And sometimes those expectations have nothing to do with who we are. And we don't understand that we need to honor and be true to the way we were created. And so we try to meet everybody else's expectations, and usually doesn't do very well. And then, of course, there's brainwashing, which every family, every organization, on this planet does some of and usually it involves some type of coercion to conform or to perform in a certain way and that is not biblical and as I mentioned earlier there's a tendency we only know our own brain so we know what works for us and we think it ought to work for everybody so get a life it doesn't. I'll give you just one slide here. Again, you can go to my website, click on Practical Applications, and then click on Spirituality and Religion, and you'll see a whole bunch of examples of how people approach different aspects in life based on their brain lead. So the front left is very analytical and systematic, And the left is very conservative and often somewhat rules-oriented because they're the ones that run the routines. And if you get the, the software developed, they don't want to have to change it. Well, software was designed to be improved. I'm really glad I'm not using the same version of Windows. So your brain software can be improved as well, but that will be a choice. And the basal right is very relational and expressive. And if they're not healthy, they sometimes take offense at every little thing and, you know, wear their heart on their sleeve. So they can learn to realize it's just another brain's opinion. Anything any of you say to me is just your brain's opinion. I'll thank you for it and say I'll think about it. And if it works for my brain, I'll pick it up. If it doesn't, it's gone, because it's nothing to do with my brain. It came out of yours. And the frontal right is innovation and variety and the big picture and anything that's new and different. I was actually delighted to see the set of drums on the stage last night. You know, I told people that when I grow up and retire, I'm going to learn to play the drums. I, I think I might be pretty innovative at it. but in some churches you'd never see drums on the platform I mean that would be absolutely anathema and believe me these two parts of the brain actually love drums these are wonderful at rhythms just wonderful and so when you're thinking about what goes on in churches you need something for every chunk of the brain otherwise Your congregation will be skewed to whatever is emphasized in terms of brain function. And gradually people who have a different brain function won't won't want to come because there's nothing there for them. And you remember this is the part of the brain where I have my energy advantage, although I was raised by parents who only emphasized the left brain stuff. They did the best they knew how to do, but that's all I emphasized. And you may remember that Paul, since we're talking about Paul today, said, remember to sing a new song. I heard a couple of new songs this week that I haven't heard in the States. That's great. I don't know if they're new for you. If they aren't, then learn another new song. Nothing's 100%. You always give up something to get something. And here's some brand new research that I find Just so interesting. Researchers took people, put them together in groups and asked them to problem solve. One group was very homogeneous. They were very much alike. Same race, same language, and to the best of their ability, same brain lead. The other group was very diverse. Different cultures, different races, different brain leads represented different genders. And at the end of the research, they had them fill out all these questions about how the experience had been for them. Fascinating. The homogeneous group, they didn't get very far with problem solving. They were not done at the end of the time, but they said, we had a really good time. Well, yeah, they were all speaking the same language. The diverse groups got much farther in problem solving and had a much more whole-brain solution on the table, but they didn't think they had a lot of fun. So, you will always give up something to get something, and knowing that, you can choose what it is you want. Alright, so let's finish up with Paul's recommendations. Well. I started with this one in Philippians 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, not clones. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Then when I started reading Acts 15, I went, oh my goodness, he is a lot more basic than that. He said, stop requiring everybody to do the same things. For heaven's sake, stop trying to make the Gentiles get circumcised. Oh, well, that was pretty huge back in the world then. He says, refrain from placing a yoke on the necks of other leaders, other disciples, other members that neither we nor our forefathers were able to bear. So if you're studying Acts 15, I suggest you read that chapter and you ask yourself, have I been requiring everybody to do exactly the same thing in exactly the same way? Have I been in an effort to do it right, layering on rules after rules after rules to the point that nobody can do it, and now they're feeling really bad about themselves because they can't do it. So they think there's something wrong with them and they stop trying altogether. So the bottom line. Back to Ellen G. White. We cannot all have the same minds. We don't. I don't know how she knew that without brain imaging equipment, but we don't. We can't have the same minds or cherish the same ideas, but one is to be a benefit and a blessing to the other. We have diverse excellences. So each one of us is either part of the problem or part of the solution. What does that mean? For me to be part of the solution, this is what it looks like. I have a personal relationship with my, I was going to say higher power, that will probably freak some of you out, but I usually lecture to people who have no affiliation with religion, so I talk about higher power because the word God doesn't resonate with some of them. But I remind myself where I am. A personal relationship with God. Secondly, I accept the gift of salvation on a daily basis. I can't do anything to earn it. Nothing. I accept it. It's a free gift. Wish I'd known that a lot sooner. My purpose is to let the Holy Spirit guide my behaviors for the way in which I was created. Nothing to do with my salvation. But how do you want me to role model? And I want to role model Christ's communication style, which was inclusive, affirming, caring, realizing that everybody is different. And I want to promote unity and diversity, and whatever else I do, stop trying to take on the role of the Holy Spirit, which I can't do anyway. But we try to do that. So bottom line. Only when all the parts of us, which in my model is the pyramid, only when all the parts are at the table will any group, any church, any organization flourish. So I leave you with the question, you're part of the solution or part of the problem? And what are you doing on a daily basis to help your environment achieve unity and diversity? So those of you who'd like to stand, do so for the closing prayer. And the rest of you, feel free to sit. Dear Heavenly Parent. I personally am so grateful for the brain function information and that we are learning something about the magnificence of the brain that you have placed within each one of us. Help us to be part of the solution, not the problem. To begin to look at the Bible admonition as really up to date with brain function if we just align the parts thank you in advance for your love and your care and your brain and for motivating us to learn more about it so we can use it by design to your glory. In Christ's name.